Welcome to the Proclaim and Defend podcast, a ministry of the Foundations Baptist Fellowship International. We seek to encourage and inform pastors on modern-day topics from a biblical perspective. Our mission is to bring together like-minded Baptists to collaborate in glorifying God through fulfilling the Great Commission. Hi, it's Don Johnson again with the Proclaim and Defend podcast. In this episode, we are bringing one of the messages from our recent annual meeting held at Faith Baptist Bible College and Seminary in Ankeny, Iowa. You can find audio for all the messages at fbfiannualfellowship.org. Just look under the Media tab. There you will see messages for 2023 and for 2022 as well. We also plan to release the messages and workshops in the podcast format over the next several weeks. So you can have a choice. You can go to the website and get them all and uh, for a binge listening episode, or you can take it in uh, smaller bites over the summer through your podcast feed. It's up to you. The conference was a special blessing to us all. I hope you enjoy the messages and make plans to attend our 2024 meeting in Denver. Now for today's featured message. The book of Titus. And we'll spend our whole uh, time there uh, together this evening. I want to give a personal note of thanks to Dr. Tillotson. And uh, we all know who the real brains are here with uh, Brianna and all of her organization. No offense, Jim. But uh, thanks, Brianna, and your crew for keeping us all where we need to be. Um, I was telling Brianna before the service started tonight that uh, the, the greatest trial that this school has gone through was not COVID. It was the flood that happened here. And uh, you folks are familiar with that and how God took care of them. But uh, Brianna, I think you lost about everything in that flood, didn't you? Yeah, and she still was holding through and holding up and and uh, just a sweetheart of a servant. So thank you all to the whole faith, faculty, staff, support staff, students here helping Uh, Pastor Kevin, uh, thank you for the opportunity to be here tonight amongst friends, and uh, it's it's, it's an honor to be here. Uh, We're communicating back home for Kevin, and uh, we'll be praying for him and his recovery in the weeks and months ahead to be sure, right? Some of you have asked uh, about uh, Arch Ministries. Arch Ministries is just the Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts arm of grace in Mentor. That's how I can simply explain it. And uh, the Lord's blessed it. It's growing. And uh, we would uh, love to partner with you, your churches, your schools, your organizations, uh, unto a more efficient spread of the gospel around our country and our world. And uh, we're growing more and more poised to do that. We're looking forward to doing that with you. And um, in the near future, on a more full-time basis. Uh, but uh, that's really what it is. Uh, we offer a number of different things in that regard. One of those things is uh, how to develop a disciple-making culture in your church. It's now three seminars. It's a beginner, intermediate, and advanced. Um, but God's used it to help churches um, understand the culture that you heard a lot of in our second sermon uh, this morning. And uh, if we can help you in that regard, uh, we'd love to uh, love to do that. Our our next seminar is in mid-September at Grace and Mentor, and you're welcome to come. Uh, if you can't afford to come, we'd like to help pay your way to come. We don't ever want money to be an obstacle for strengthening our relationships uh, for gospel purposes. But uh, let's have a word of prayer here together, and then we'll dive into to God's Word. All right? Lord, thank you for this opportunity to open up the perfect law of liberty. Help us to not just be faithful hearers, but faithful doers of the word so that we might understand what it means to be blessed of heaven in our deeds. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We all only have 168 hours in our week. There's a lot of necessary biblical things that we do to fill those 168 hours. 
I do feel the grace of God would compel us to carve out intentional time with folks in our churches personally, training them to train each other in the Word, and then also find time to build our redemptive relationships uh, with unbelievers in our communities as well. This is the practical doing of the Great Commission. We've got to equip our people to train each other in the Word, from milk to meat and everything in between, while at the same time prayerfully and actively building redemptive relationships in our communities. Growing deep within by the Word of God, while we reach broader without, and each member of our flocks gradually owning these function of Great Commission living is the will of God. For years, many have done this more passively than aggressively, and I suppose for good reason, but where I grew up, it was not actively pursued in the group of churches. We did evangelism, we did teaching, but we didn't do disciple-making. One of the reasons was because of texts like Proverbs chapter 1 that gives us fair warning regarding how unbelief can hurt and hinder our walk with the Lord if we spend too much unreasonable, unwise time with them. Paul would warn us as children of light in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 to be alert as we exist with the sons of disobedience. We understand that. There are other passages that give us good wisdom regarding the character and growth in Christ's likeness needed in order to reasonably invest time with the lost for Christ's sake. And those are well known by all of you. But what's really comforting to my heart about the book of Titus, where we find ourselves this evening, is the foundation and growth that is laid out for us in Christ, in the local church, before, as we prepare our way, to venture out and build redemptive relationships in our communities. Titus is a pastoral epistle, you know that. It's one of three. As we familiarize ourselves with these small letters, we know that they're about God's structure and order for the church. But the spiritual health of a well-ordered church should give way to spiritual reproductivity. And I hope we'll all see that as we spend a few moments together in these three chapters. You're familiar with Ephesians 2.10? We are his workmanship created unto good works. I know it can be hard for Christians who have been saved by grace apart from works to talk a lot about works in the Christian life. I get it. We understand our community is 90% Roman Catholic, and we, we certainly do everything we can to avoid discussions on work salvation. We don't ever want anyone to believe that Scripture teaches that we can work our way to being saved, that we can be good enough to gain God's approval to get into heaven. The purest definition, though, of legalism in the Bible is works salvation. That's certainly not what Paul is advocating anywhere he discusses good deeds. You and I know that. He's not even supporting what I call passive legalism in my ministry of history, or what some would call performance-driven Christianity, where someone's spiritual health is determined by how well others feel they're doing and following the, the do's and don'ts of Christianity. It's clear to see that Paul teaches Titus to maintain and encourage spiritual standards of character and living among the Cretan flock. If they're spirit-filled, they will grow in Christ-likeness and, and mirror God-like character within the church and also in the Cretan community. The Bible does teach that Christ's work on the cross is a sufficient work for our sin. He's the Lamb of God that's come to take away your and my sin and the sin of the whole world. He did have our sin legally placed upon him by God, and when you repent from your sins and place your faith in Christ and his finished work for you, God places the perfect righteousness of Christ upon you. It is indeed the most glorious deed performed upon and within any human soul. But the scripture is very clear. Our faith in Christ is put on display through good works. Good works allow those who are saved and not to do some window shopping into our lives. 
They are the divine acts of love done by God's redeemed, His children, that allow us all to see the lifestyle of someone who truly knows the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. James is clear, isn't he? We show our faith by our works. Good works, also known as good deeds in some translations, are often often juxtaposed to our conversion. The two are quite inseparable with works in Scripture always following true saving faith. As a matter of fact, we would call a faith without works a dead faith, and a faith with works a living faith. If you take all of your written and electronic Bible study tools and searched for the word good deeds or good works of a wonderful study illuminated by the Spirit of God about what a living faith is. You'll also dig up this fact, that Titus, even though it's three chapters in length, contains more mention of the word or phrase good deeds or good works than any other New Testament letter. From an obvious 50,000 foot perspective, Paul sought to define good deeds simply by comparing and contrasting good deeds with evil deeds. If you're taking notes, he, he does that in chapter 1, verses 10 to 16, and chapter 2 and verse 14, and chapter 3, verses 8 to 10. Coming down from that 50 foot, 50,000 foot level, as we sharpen our pencils and Consider together what a living faith is. A living faith is demonstrated through Paul himself, even in his life of mentoring Titus, chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. By grace he's been saved and appointed an apostle, the text says, a faithful deliverer of the word and certainly a model of doing good deeds inside and outside the church. He's modeled that for both shepherds of the pastorals, as you know. Here Titus is actually called Paul's true child or true son in the faith. For some years, Paul modeled this for Titus, the recently appointed pastor at Crete. What the authentic doing of good deeds really is and what it should look like. So even at this next layer of general investigation of what this living faith is and does, it certainly seems that the doing of good deeds is both caught and taught by shadowing a model person of good works. And so for the sake of time tonight, let's begin to land the plane here and unpack together necessary aspects of good deeds founded in this pastoral letter. So we need to first of all consider the nature of our conversion compels us to good deeds. The nature of our conversion compels us to good deeds. Let's look at chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation that's appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people. And there it is, right? Zealous for good deeds. Go over to chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men, for we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of the regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he said on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And this is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou would affirm constantly that they which believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable for men. So as you notice the activity of the Lord in these verses in relationship to our salvation, we understand that the the greatest deed ever performed, as we said earlier, was by God in Christ through through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit within our souls at the moment of our conversion. And The nature of our hearts, our sinful condition, as clearly described in these verses, 
there was something of a transformation that happens miraculously by the grace of God. And if we remember back to Ephesians 2.10 earlier, we are his workmanship. A few verses before that in Ephesians chapter 2, though, we realize that there's been something of a quickening God brought upon our souls that took us from spiritual death to spiritual life. In Titus 2, we see the grace of God appearing and doing some heart-changing and life-changing things. And in chapter 3, our triune God is fully initiating the work of saving faith. There's washing, renewing, pouring, transforming, and enriching as heirs according to the people of eternal life, verse 7 says. People brought, being brought upon us from the Lord. God is doing the heavy lifting of work when bringing us to Christ. He had to. We all know that because we were dead. It took God's all-powerful spirit to resurrect or renew our dead souls. You remember John's narrative of Lazarus' burial in John 11. What do you think would have happened if Jesus is standing there with his friends and Lazarus' family members, and they just all stood there waiting for Lazarus to resurrect himself? It would have been some few quiet cricket moments, right? Why? Well, he's dead. He's just dead. When the Logos speaks, when the Word speaks, Lazarus come forth. That works. He reminds the family and the crowd that he is the giver of life, both physical and spiritual. Whether a soul is dead or a body is dead, he is the creator and the recreator. Physical and spiritual life. God is the only omnipotent one who speaks life into the dead soul, body, and they live in his power. Talbert says in his book that God had no more cause or necessity to save us than Jesus' enemies had, to hate him and hang him on the cross. But God's saving work is the free choice of his good pleasure to the praise of his own glory and his own grace. So when we review the language of Titus 2, 11 to 14, 3, 1 to 5, it's God's power that saves by grace and gives us a living faith. And since it's God's grace that does this, it's God's grace and His good work within our souls that sustains the ability for every good work to be done by every believer. So as we continue on past understanding the nature of our salvation as it pertains to work, where does the energy come to doing those good works? Let's look at how uh, good works nurture the flock. That's the nature of their origin and their function, the energy for their function. Let's look at the the nurturing value of good works within this book. So where do we see good works nurturing the church to prepare to go outside the church and reach others for Christ? We've already mentioned the convert conversation um, uh, regarding pastoral placement relationship with Paul and Titus. There's that mentoring relationship going on there. And what is the first thing Paul asked Titus to do? Do you remember? Verses 5 to 9 of chapter 1, let's, let's go ahead and place some fellows in leadership here that are men of quality, character, and good works. These men were to be models of character and good deeds. These men were to be men who had a living faith. Appointing these men as pastor had to be quite a task for Titus, especially with the way Paul described the darkness of the Cretan society and what they were even dealing with within the church at the end of chapter 1. Nonetheless, this was his first task. Appoint the guys that will nurture the flock by modeling good character and good deeds as, they, as, they're, as they're overseeing them. Paul didn't ask Titus to appoint perfect men, but model men. Though each one of these elders would consider themselves to be the greatest sinners in every room they walked into, these were not men disinterested in their homes. These were not men known as scoundrels by the lost in their communities. They were not men disrespected by the flock there in Crete. The leaders of the church are consistent in good works. In their homes, community, church community, the elders are described by, by their character and their character is proven and informed, uh, affirmed in the church via good works. So in addition to Paul's model, he lived for Timothy and the elders 
for the flock. In chapter 2, there's a third subgroup within the flock that is to nurture the flock through and to good deeds. The good works continue to effervesce among the flock from the top down, so to speak, as we see those over 60 years of age influencing all those under 60 years of age in this tiny church. Chapter 2 and verse 2, older wise men are to lead younger men. Chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, you know well. Wise women model graceful good works among the younger women. If you look with me in chapter 2, verses 3 through 8, as we read through this, I would like you to underline uh, the words to be. To be. The age of women likewise, that they be in behaviors behemoth holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. That they may teach the younger women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers of home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded, in all things showing thyself to be a pattern of good works. A pattern of good works. There's a life on life here within the body addressing a full range of life issues together. And it's very clear indication is that they're to do things together are good works that are nurturing and maturing the flock from within. Personal, spiritual formation, maturation in the church is never merely about me. It's always about the we of the body. Of course, good deeds is central to the thought pattern as found in verses 6 and 7 as we've read. You'll notice there in verses 6 and 7 that the young men as there have the models of the older men in the church that they're to be actualized as being examples themselves. Examples of good deeds. They're to leave their mark on the flock. This word, as it was understood in the first century, would be to leave a scar. Scars aren't necessarily good things, but they're noticeable things. Some understood to, to be an archetype, to be a nurturer in these ways outlined in the text. And so we must ask ourselves the question, since the older are modeling for the younger, and the younger are to be the model for those among them who may be younger than them, there really is a three-generation reality of spiritual formation within the context of just chapter 3 alone and four generations within the first two chapters if you had Paul's influence upon Titus. All within the local church. We had a 75th anniversary celebration in May at Grace and Menor. And uh, there were three men and their wives that were um, all saved about 35 to 40 years ago in our church. And we asked those six folks to come up on stage. And uh, as we've developed a disciple-making culture at Grace, we wanted to just show God's faithfulness. So we have Titus two people on the stage. All these folks are in their mid-70s. We asked everyone in the crowd that they had led to Christ or had discipled to go ahead and stand. About 25, 30 people stood. But they were still actively discipling. Then we asked people to stand who their mentors, their mentees were mentoring. Another 25 to 30 people stood. And then we asked those to stand in the crowd who that third generation had won to Christ, who were discipling. And about another 10 people stood. And like spontaneous combustion, the, the, the congregation just exploded with cheers and applause. That's the most practical illustration I could give of what Titus is talking about here in the text. And, and I know we need to be careful because we've always been taught, and it's true, the purpose for the pastorals. The structure of the church, the function of the church, and I fully believe that. But it's the structure and function of a spiritually healthy church. 
A church that's spiritually healthy enough to reproduce itself. That's the church. That's the church. And so these folks that have been saved for some 40 years, 35, 40 years, they're standing on stage in tears, seeing something happen before their eyes that they could have never, ever, ever imagined would happen. God used me like that? No way. Yes way. Yeah. And my friends, that's how Jesus builds his church. If you've got half your brain tied behind your back and only half your brain functional, and you've got a couple hundred dollars in your pocket, there are a lot of creative ways to grow our churches. And quite frankly, it's not really hard for me to get people to come to church. It's not hard. And you say, well, that's just your gift. I don't know if that's a gift. That's, to me, just full pragmatism. It's not hard to get people to come to church. We can build the church, numerically, but only Jesus builds the church this way. This is something that that lasts in perpetuity. This is something that is perpetuated when Pastor Tim Potter's dead and gone. This is, this is the, the health of the church. So as we continue unpacking the book regarding good deeds, in further clarification in chapter 3, verses 12 to 14, it teaches us that the practical service of good works that minister to the people of God who are doing the will of God. Words like make every effort diligently. Our people must learn also to meet pressing needs. All these things. Why? So that they will not be unfruitful in local church ministry. Good deeds among the people of God are the nurturing of the flock unto a healthy living faith that provides a robust spiritual reality among each person in every local body. And my friends, I assure you, a disciple-making people are not just a busy people in the ministry utilizing their spiritual gifts. Hang on with me here. We all know that that's essential. They're God's gifts that we're supposed to steward. But they're also a spiritually healthy, reproductive people too. There's a quantum difference between faith and a busy, faithful, and a healthy people. Everyone and everything that's spiritually or physically healthy reproduces after its kind. And healthy people just make sure the practical aspects of ministry are attended to. That's the easiest thing they do as they maintain their focus on the hardest and most necessary thing to do, which is spiritual reproductivity. The whole of the book of Titus would teach us that in order to properly nurture the church by good works, we must never merely wait upon the church to call upon us for help, help, but we must remain on the threshold of the door of good deeds, showing that Christ is the overflow of our lives, and we wait on the edge of our seats to do His good eternal work among His people. But that becomes the easy thing we do. You remember the days of the phrase, and maybe it still exists, where there's 20% of the people doing 80% of the work. That's been the stage four cancer of a lot of our churches for decades. But I'm telling you, my friends, spiritually reproductive people, people that aren't just busy but healthy, 96% of the membership at Grace Church now is doing 100% of the work. It becomes easy for them to obey the Lord in the doing of their spiritual gift because they want to keep the tip of the spear of their existence in focused and used, which is spiritual reproductivity. If you came to our church and talked to a particular usher, Joe, and you would say, hey, Joe, what do you do here? And he goes, well, I led that guy to Christ and I'm mentoring him. Well, that's really good. Well, what else do you do here? Well, he said, well, that guy... I didn't win to Christ, but he'd never been discipled, and I'm, and I'm discipling him. Well, what else do you do, Joe? You're going to ask that question seven times, and Joe's going to show you seven guys that he's discipling or led to Christ that he's discipling. They're going to say, Joe, what do you really do here? What's that white tag on the lapel of your, of your, of your, of your suit coat? You know, well, I, I usher. I have the gift of helps. 
And I just saw a gap in the usher schedule and that, 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 that's the easy part I do. But let me tell you what my ministry is. Not busy, healthy. We thank the Lord for faithful four service a week people who serve, who tithe, who have a longing for foreign missions to be supported. But my friends, our churches have existed a long time with valuable people pursuing those valuable things. And we're plateauing and we're dying and we're closing our doors. It's like Spurgeon said of Nero of old, we're, we're sitting around playing our fiddle while Rome's burning. If we are healthy within, we will have a healthy outreach. The healthier the inreach, the more robust the outreach, quite frankly. And you know, folks, doing good works does have a tremendous protective value in the church. A living faith doesn't completely insulate the church from merely professing believers, but it does protect it from them. I mean, even disciple-making people who make more disciples, and they worship among sometimes false professing people. We can say that in most flocks, that it's kind of unavoidable. But hang on with me here. Spiritually healthy people, reproducing people, love to protect the flock, and and they'll do anything they can to guard the spiritual reality of the Lord's people and what they're enjoying. What does chapter 3 and verse 10 say? There's a good work here. It's kind of tough to read. A man that is a heretic after the first and second admonition reject, knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself. This is within the church. They're entered, and they're, this, this, these people, this person, they're mentioned towards the end of the letter, so this may indicate that This may be the exception rather than the rule, but nonetheless, I think unavoidable in any of our flocks. But there's a strong imperative here. Reject the factitious one. Reject the one who continues to speak ill of the saints of God and divide relationships within the church. This is a heretic. This is a divider of people. Remain disciplined in doing this, Paul says. There's one conversation and then a second chance given, but that all need to be reminded that these folks are perverted and in sin and remain self-condemned. Protection is the nurturing of the church. It's rare but necessary. And souls within a spiritually healthy living faith flock protect the flock. And by the way, my friends, when you have a disciple-making culture, Factitious people, heretics, are so much more easily exposed. I grew up in a church where snakes and three-piece suits and modest dresses could exist for decades before they get to that moment where it's kind of like, this is who I really am. Deacons, elders... But in a disciple-making flock where, where people are nurturing each other from within like this, to the highest percentage possible in your church, unbelief cannot thrive. The obeying of this imperative is never easy, but they know it's immediately necessary. Because healthy people love to protect health. And spiritual reproductivity. Good works abound under the nurturing and the protection of the people of God within the church. And that developed health reproduces itself outside the church as well. So we've looked a little bit at the nature of the energy behind the doing of good works and its nurturing value. Uh, let's, let's finish tonight with some natural rhythms some natural rhythms, if you will, of good works outside the church. 
One unexpected God-intended blessing of having an authentic, nurturing, disciple-making environment within the church is the healthy believers grow in their burden for lost people. Remember the old phrase you maybe heard in seminary? Right? Your orthodoxy is nothing unless you have ortho-what? Orthopraxy. Do you know how many well-indoctrinated, unhealthy people we have in our churches? The only way you can take a pulse on the true spiritual health of your church is if you have to the member a passionate desire to do both aspects of the Great Commission in their life. Not just teaching and observing all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and not just going but both owned by each as their primary pledge of allegiance and their existence inside the local church. And yes, I'm going to be well indoctrinated. Yes, I'm going to be well taught. Yes, I'm going to nurture the flock via my spiritual gift. Yes, 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 I'm going to be faithful, faithful, faithful. This is what faithful people do, though. The healthier they are within, the more they want to reach without. They just do. Have the whole Pentateuch memorized. Have all the Gospels memorized. If you have someone that's not growing equally in their passion for lost people, gift of evangelism or not, they're not a healthy person. And that might actually be you tonight. It may make us uncomfortable for a moment. But a nurtured living faith is compelled by grace to intersect with unbelief for Christ's sake in our communities. Where I grew up, as I said earlier, this was strongly cautioned against so that we would not fall prey to the temptations of a social gospel. I grew up among a church group group of church pastors who I stand on their shoulders and I love them were godly men, but they were they were preaching ecclesiastical separation before separation was even a word used among most fundamental people. We could not do what this text says. It's fascinating looking back in the rearview mirror because we were to be protecting ourselves against revisiting the social gospel activity, the fundamentalist modernist controversy of the early part of the 20th century. I understand this warning to be sure, and it can be very easy for our churches to just become philanthropic institutions within our communities. But God hasn't called us as children to merely blend in with the do-gooders of our community. He's called us to be the light of the world, to be fishers of men. Any good deed we do among those without Christ, as well-nourished members of our local churches, is for the purpose of living and sharing the saving grace of Jesus Christ with every soul in our community. The church's mission is to make disciples, not transform the culture or just move the moral needle of our communities just a bit. So the overarching mandate for us regarding good deeds both inside and outside our local churches is given by Titus in chapter 2.14 that we've already read. We have been recreated to do good deeds in a very zealous way. That's a, that's a pretty powerful word. Be zealous unto good deeds. And I believe within the context of where that phrase falls, it applies both to within and without the church. Then Paul gives Titus a couple places and specific where good deeds can be used for redemptive purposes. Look at chapter 2 and verse 9. Exhort servants, employees to be obedient unto their own bosses, masters, and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, not showing all good, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Our people spend an average 2,450 hours a year doing their jobs. Whether working remotely now or not, our people are still modeling a changed life among unbelief for 40 hours a week, 52 weeks a year. Are your people praying for their coworkers 
Are they taking their well-nourished selves from inside the body to building redemptive relationships with co-workers? Are they asking God for wisdom regarding doing good works among unsaved people? Because if they ask for wisdom, I promise you, he'll give it lavishly. We have some people giving $5 gift cards to a co-worker to Dunkin' Donuts for reaching a work goal. We have other people developing deep, and meaningful, redemptive relationships. Some people so much so that they're in constant card exchanges for birthdays, anniversaries. They weep over their dying loved ones. They attend their funerals. We have unsaved people who cannot live without their saved friends. It always bothered me growing up as a pastor's kid. I've been at the church I'm pastoring for 51 years now as a person, as a pastor, and I attended a lot of funerals of a lot of really good and godly people. And certainly those auditoriums were packed with people that respected and wanted to pay their last respects to someone that had tremendous spiritual influence in their life and influence they, they did. People that they had won to Christ and people that they had modeled faithfulness within the flock. But one thing always amazed me as I attended these funerals and continued to attend these funerals, how many unsaved people were not there. You see, my friends, I think for too long we've had hundreds of acquaintances in our towns. Not many relationships. Because we filled up our 168 hours a week doing all the biblical imperatives. Love your wife. Don't exasperate your children. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Fan the flame of your gift. Imperative after imperative after imperative. Make sure you do what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes and consider the S-U-N. Take, take a time to have a vacation. This is good. Get away. Devote yourself to the Lord, to physical restoration. Do all those things that are necessary things. And our lives are very full to overflowing with doing good things at the expense of what Paul's telling Titus to structure Cretan church to do. We have people scheduling golf days with a work partner partner and paying for their round of golfs because it's their birthday. We have people going on weekend hiking excursions. They have them over for a game night often. They binge watch quality TV shows together for a whole evening. They go to sporting events together. They're just friends. And one by one, over months, sometimes years, and sometimes even decades. The Lord mercifully saves one friend at a time. Because you don't have to compromise your holy living. First Peter 1, 15-17 doesn't change for us. Be holy. God's holy. Jesus' prayer is being answered. His high priestly prayer in John 17, verses 15 to 17, is actually being answered as he prayed for you and for me as we understand the book of Titus. Lord, don't take them out of the world, but do what? Leave them there, but do what? Sanctify them by thy truth, because thy word is truth. It can actually be done. You can grow closer to the Lord and have a bigger burden for lost people in the community and genuinely love them for their soul's sake, for Christ's sake. Live counterculturally in front of them. What we find out as a family in the Potter household and now families in our community, we actually find that most persecution isn't coming from unchurched, unsaved people. It's coming from religious people in our community. And in the early days of developing this culture, most from inside our own body. But the people are our friends in the community. We're such good friends with them. So come on over for a pig roast. Tim, tonight, great, cool, we'll be there. Hey, you know what happens at my house after 9.30, right Tim? 
I know you're not going to want to be there. Thanks for the warning, Tom. Appreciate it. So you know if I slip away, when it turns from a pig roast to a party party. Yeah, I'm cool with that. We'll see you next week, Tim. They actually start to protect your values. It's interesting. They don't try to bring you down with them. If we're going deeper in the word, saint to saint in the body, then there will be a nurtured and encouraged energy, reality of spiritual health that we take to the world in the natural rhythms of our lives for Christ's sake. What does he say in chapter 3, verses 1 to 2? We can uncompromisingly participate in many areas of our communities for Christ's sake. But remember, we saturate ourselves as Christians with a lot of valuable opportunities, so we may have to sit and evaluate, as we've already said, how we can make sure that good Christian things can be maintained without making the go be fishers of men and the disciple-making part of our lives expendable. Do a demographic scan of your neighborhoods. Look at the library, stores, medical clinics, schools, school board offices, first responder stations, city council offices. Know where the people are in your community, then go to the people. The church is not a saving agency. It is a sending agency. Encourage your people to no longer invite people to church before they invite them to Christ. Worship services are not for unbelievers, my friends. They're for the people of God to worship Him because they've been made or remade in Christ to do so. Unsaved people come to our church all the time. And they're most welcome. But my friends, if we have a healthy people and they're being trained in the right way, they will long before they invite someone to church sit down and invite them to their sweet Jesus. Jesus saves, not Grace Church of Menor. And it's their job to do disciple making. It's not my job to do that for them. As I do my job of disciple making in our community. And I know this might sound a little, I don't want it to be overwhelming. And yet I don't want it to be underwhelming either. It, it just really is what it is. What does Colossians 3.8 say? Excuse me, Titus 3.8 say? This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. What does he say in Titus chapter 2 and verse 15? And you understand this now, hopefully with a little bit better context. You all understood this within context long before I preached it. But what does Paul say here? These things speak. Look at the language. Look at the power of the use of words here. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no man despise what you're saying, Titus. This is big stuff. Take a healthy people. Develop a healthy people within. Not just you developing them. Certainly you're gonna, you're gonna teach and, and shepherd and, and teach and shepherd and teach and shepherd, but you're equipping them to teach and shepherd each other in the Word. And then you're gonna have a healthy church going to the community. Not, not compromising their holy living and their holy standards. And when they win someone to Christ, guess what? You're not going to disciple them. They are, because they've been equipped to do that. At Grace Church of Mentor, we have a pamphlet we've drawn up. It's called From New Birth to Last Breath. And we have written for or provided for what our people are going to study with someone in our church that they've witnessed to and won to Christ. Right? So if I'm Pastor Hamilton's buddy at a, at a, at a factory for 10 years and and I have a, finally have a chance to lead him to Christ as a co-worker. My pastor has provided for me what he and I are going to study for the rest of our existence in that local church together. We're going to grow each other in the Word. We provide the time, the resources, and the place where I can go one-on-one with you in trusted materials to grow deeper in the Word so you and I can go out into the community and have a greater burden for lost people. And then guess what? You might... 
win the next person down the line at the factory in 10 months where it took me 10 years to win you. That's God's stuff. But then you're going to be responsible to disciple him as I'm discipling you. It happens from the top down. I have two men that shepherd and disciple me. As I disciple people that I've led to Christ. As they disciple people that they've led to Christ. The Pledge of Allegiance of our existence at Grace is everyone win one, then lead one, and then always follow one. And I think that's kind of in the text as we've looked at the nurturing of the flock and, and the natural next things. Um, we were at my one of my son's football games on a Friday night, and um, this lady came over to us and uh, said, Hey, I, I'm Frankie Schmidt's mom. My name's Kim, and uh, I just had to introduce myself to you. We, Whenever we go to football games, we tell our church people, Don't sit by us. We see you on a regular basis. That's great, but this is our time to be with lost people. Because right? when they come to the games, you know, watch the football game, they all find Pastor Tim and crowd around Pastor Tim's like, no, 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 I'm going to get up and leave now. I told you I wasn't going to sit with you. I'm going to go be with my unsafe friends. And so we go with their unsafe friends. I just hadn't met Kim Smith last. She came over and she said, she said some really interesting things. She goes, I have to thank you for Noah. And I was like, uh-oh, what do you do? I said, she said, no. I said, I'm going to thank you. Um, she said, did you know that, they, that they've been trying to hurt him in practice, his own teammates? And my son's been part of this. I was like, no, what are you talking about? She goes, in practice, they've been trying to take out his knees and send him to the hospital. And I was like, well, why would they do that? Is he a bad teammate? They said, no, he just can't, they just can't stand the fact that he doesn't cuss. They're going to do everything they can to get him to cuss just once. That's their goal. I said, you got to be kidding me. She goes, no, not kidding you. She goes, I just want to thank you. Because he still hasn't cussed, and he hasn't pulverized anyone on the team that's trying to hurt him. And not only that, they're upset with him because he's not going to parties, and he's not sleeping with the cheerleaders. And he doesn't attend the LGBTQ pride meetings after school. But he's not mean either. So I got in the car after the game with Noah. We were playing St. Ignatius, big, huge powerhouse football team. We, we slobber knocked them that night. It was so beautiful. And, uh, Noah, Noah just slaughtered their quarterback a couple times. That was even more beautiful. But we got in the car after the game and I said, Noah, is this true? Has this guy been trying to hurt you? He goes, Oh yeah, ever since my freshman year. So why didn't you say anything? He goes, Ah, I'm bigger than most of them. I don't think they can hurt me. You know? He goes, how'd you find out? I said, well, Frankie's mom told me. That night in the fourth quarter, uh, Frankie was a big-time power five defensive tackle prospect. He went down with an injury. It ended up being a, um, a medically, medical retirement injury. I can't go into all the details of that process, but one of the ways that we try to nurture our family within and then and to go out into our communities is if we ever had anyone on any one of our teams that went down in a season with a season-ending injury, we would take a gift to their home or to the hospital, and we would give that to them. We would ask them if we could pray with them. Now understand, this isn't a cold call. These are people that we've known well. So we did that. The next day, we went to the hospital, saw Frankie. I had had a number of surgeries that took me out of my sports career, so I could sympathize with him a little bit. And... Um, I knelt down by the bed, and uh, we just both broke into tears at the same time. So I crawled up on the bed with him. I'm just laying in the bed next to this big old six foot three, two hundred and sixty five pound kid, and we're just crying. And uh, he said, "He said, Mr. Potter, he said, I think it's over." So it was for me, Frankie, and I understand. I want to let you know we love you. Can I just pray with you when I'm laying in the bed with you here? Mom, Dad, could I have your permission? Aunts and uncles in the room, sisters in the room, girlfriends in the room. And we just prayed, laying in the bed. Frankie went home from the hospital after his reconstruction surgery. 
which then consequently got severely infected. They had to go undo the whole surgery, clean out his knee, and that was the end of his football career. But we went to his home uh, the day after he got home, uh, Noah and I did, and it was in his home that we had the opportunity to, to lead Frankie to Christ. And then the first Sunday of COVID, as he's watching our live stream with church with his dad, we had a man dying of cancer in our church, and our people were never going to be able to see him again. So we recorded a, lie, a message of that man to our whole church so he could say his goodbyes. And Frankie's dad was watching that. And through the whole time, Frankie's there with tears but with a smile on his face. And Frankie's dad told me, because uh, he called me later on that day, Frankie called me and he said, my dad's really got to talk to you. This whole COVID thing's really freaking him out. And he asked to talk to you. And I said, great, I'll talk to him. So I was talking to him on the phone and he told me the story of Frankie sitting on the couch with a smile on his face and tears in his eyes. And, and, and he asked Frankie, how in the world can you be so peaceful at a time like this? That guy is going to die your football career may be over, and we're in COVID for heaven's sakes, I may die. And all Frankie said was, Dad, I don't know. He said, Jesus just changed me. That's all he said. And so I told his dad, I said, Rick, he can change you too. Before we get off the phone, man, what do you think? Yeah, that'd be great. (laughs) And he, first Sunday of COVID, never forget it, he prayed on the phone, and entrusted his life to Christ. Let's look at John 9 just for a second, and we're done. John 9. I know the whole theological point of John 9 is verse 39, in my opinion. Jesus had a powerful statement there uh, that he makes. For judgment I am coming to this world that they which see not might see and they which see might be made blind. I understand that. But if we could look at the beginning part of chapter 9, and this is sometime after the Feast of Tabernacles and um, before the Feast of Dedication, which was 90 days after the Feast of Tabernacles from what we understand. And Jesus was just walking leisurely with his disciples and he saw, that's a powerful verb there, my friends, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him saying, Master, whose sin, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And you understand all the aspects of how sin was understood culturally in the Mosaic community and You all understand all that the Bible says about sin. That's not the purpose to go over that theologically here. But it's really interesting what Jesus says here. Neither has this man sinned, nor his parents. And then he gives a purpose statement why he's blind from birth. But that the works of God should be made manifest, not upon him, but what? In him. He's not saved after Jesus muds up his eyes and he goes and washes in the pool of Siloam. He's not saved yet. He doesn't come to Christ until the end of the chapter. Then what does Jesus say? I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work as long as I am in the world. I am the light of the world. And some grammarians say that in the beginning part here of verse 4, he actually includes the disciples and says, we must work the works of God while it's still day. While our eyes can see sunlight, while it's day for us, before we breathe our last, there's an urgency here. Follow my lead, men. I saw this guy. I interacted with this guy. I had sympathy on this guy. I think of Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 as he calls us children of the day, children of light. We join our Savior in passionately, intentionally, prayerfully, certainly being healthy within But then we go out and we see and we interact and we talk. That's doing the works 
of God as people of light in this world. And then what does Jesus say there as he continues in verse 5? As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And you know the Great Commission. Go into all the world and make disciples. And who's with us until the end of the age? The light of the world. As we seek to be light in this way. This has been the Proclaim and Defend podcast. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe and give us a good review. If you want to learn more about the FBFI, check out our website at fbfi.org or our blog, Proclaim and Defend, at proclaimanddefend.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on the Proclaim and Defend podcast.